and welcome to Wrestling at Random. I'm Jeremy Deemer. And I am Adam Summers. And this is the podcast where every week we review a classic weekly television program from a streaming service, from territories, from any classic pro wrestling promotion. Yeah, exactly. It could be from the United States. It could be from Japan. It could be from anywhere all across and around the world. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours of pro wrestling television have been dumped into the randomizer. We fire it up, and what comes out, that is what we what we watch and what we review. Yeah, and sometimes it picks something that's weird and <laughs> and, and it doesn't fit into, you know, season two here. It's weekly television shows. Season one, it was pay-per-view events, it was big uh, big events, Clash of the Champions, those types of things. So uh, if it didn't fit into the Season 1, Season 2 format, it went into just kind of a list of things we we, we don't know what to do with. Well, we know what to do with it now. A uh, few, uh, you know, it, recently we fired up a Patreon as a way for people to support the show. Patreon.com slash Wrestling at Random. There we have bonus content. So that's where those one-off matches two or three matches that's where those went was to the bonus content so every single week we put out more shows on thursdays you get this show every single sunday on the free feed the the bonus feed is updated every single thursday and there's multiple tiers that you can support the show one tier gets you all that bonus content but there's another tier available that's a little higher and uh, you get a special prize with that one yeah, absolutely. That special prize is you get to be the randomizer. You get to executive produce an episode of the show. You get to pick something for us to watch. We've already had a good number of those, and uh, it, it can run the gamut between you know something that is really good and someone wants to hear our take on a great show, or they maybe have an idea of what we haven't liked so far, and they want to give us more of that said promotion or company or time period and uh, and make us watch it. And just as a side note, if you are considering joining the Patreon and joining that tier, you can, you can request anything as far as it can be a TV show or a major uh, event like a pay-per-view or an individual match. Anything from 2010 or earlier falls into that classic, uh, uh, that classic category. You can make us watch it. We will. Uh, and we will tell you all about it for better or worse yeah we have there's a uh, there's a good list like you mentioned already hours of content if you signed up today well into the well into the double digits by now if you're listening in linear fashion in terms of episodes uh in the patreon feed and when you subscribe yes you get all the episodes coming up for the duration of your uh, your subscription, but all those past episodes on the Patreon feed uh, that you mentioned, those are all right there. So if you want to hear us review a hustle show, uh, that crazy fighting opera of a promotion from Japan, that's sitting right there for you when you sign up. If you want to hear us review Ric Flair versus Barry Windham five-star match from Worldwide, that's right there, uh, along with some a lot of other odds and ends. Uh, with a uh, a particular emphasis on the odds. Yeah, so that's a great way to support the show. We really appreciate it. Go to patreon.com slash wrestling at random for all of that. And when you sign up, I'm going to mail you stickers and a random WCW trading card as well. All kinds of fun prizes. Go check it out. 
And let's get into the free feed this week. What did the randomizer pull? It pulled an episode of WWF Superstars of Wrestling. Finally. From April 27th, 1991. Right in my wheelhouse, by the way, of watching Superstars. We've talked about before how uh, the wrestling TV calendar was organized for both of us here in Chicago as children. And Superstars, if my recollection is correct, it aired from 11 a.m. to noon at Central Time on Fox 32. That's right. Locally. Uh, because I remember it was always Worldwide was on from, I believe it was Worldwide was on from 10 to 11. It bounced around a little bit. I think it was on WGBO. Uh, and then I'd flip right over to Fox for Superstars. And then, as I've mentioned before, coming up after Superstars would be that dreadful sitcom, Small Wonder, and you hear that theme song start. It was not good. It was my signal that my wrestling morning was, in fact, over, and I should probably like go outside and roll around in the dirt or do whatever kids are supposed to do. WWF Superstars of Wrestling was the flagship syndicated show for the WWF. It started in 1986, and until 1992, it was called Superstars of Wrestling. And in 1992, it was renamed to just WWF Superstars for the remainder of its run to 96. That was due to a uh, lawsuit by another promoter who had claimed prior rights to the phrase Superstars of Wrestling. So the Superstar show itself was... It was the A show where you would get your squash matches. You would get a featured match. But this is the show where the angles happened to set up the big matches, to set up your pay-per-views, your Saturday night's main events. This was the show where the angles would happen. And all of the other shows, Wrestling Challenge, Primetime Wrestling, Spotlight, Spotlight, you would see clips from the thing that happened on Superstars. Which we referenced, if you go back earlier in the season and listen to our primetime wrestling episode, with that uh, that episode leading into WrestleMania five in 1989, we talked about that, how there would be the, the big angles, as you said, Superstars was the A show. Everything happened there. A lot of interviews, a lot of squash matches, and you know, a lot of times that big angle that would set up not only the pay-per-views and the Saturday night's main events, but also, you know, the matches that you would be going to see in your local arena. In the house shows, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they weren't, we'll get into it on this episode, they weren't as overt as other wrestling companies or territories were when talking about, like, there's shows coming up in Knoxville and Greensboro and Ocala, uh, you know, and saying, you know, you'll see these guys there. It was basically, though, like, they'll tell you, these are the important matches and they're going to, happen this weekend elsewhere in the WWF. And then you're just left to draw your own connection between that and, you know, whatever local advertising you're seeing. And in a lot of instances you would get while you were watching superstars on your, you know, your local television station in the commercial breaks, you would get localized commercials telling you about the uh, house show coming up in your town. Yeah, localized promos from the guys as well, talking yes. about coming to the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago. Oh, yeah. God, <laughs> I miss that stuff. The localized, the local promos. It couldn't have been fun for guys taping like 50 <laughs> different promos for every city, uh, you know, in a day. But as a fan, 
I mean, I can speak from experience on the WCW side. I, you know, when I finally got to go to a show when I was 11 years old, I mean, I remember seeing the the local promos on WCW shows and it got me so hyped to hear like the Steiner brothers talking about specifically coming to, you know, the UIC pavilion in Chicago to try to win the tag team titles. I'm like, Oh my God, they're talking about my town. And yeah, you said it patriotic. That's one way to describe the open. Yes, it was patriotic as there was, you know, very patriotic music, red, white, and blue, but it seemed as though the only thing that was associated with America here in this opening was Hulk Hogan. We saw clips of Hulk Hogan yes, in the ring. He was beating <laughs> people up. He was selling. He was with the troops. He was in a fighter jet. Uh, there were literal USA chants cutting through the music here in this opening. Uh, and then we dissolved to uh, the Thomas and Max Center in Las Vegas, Nevada, the gambling capital of the world, as a very excitable Vince McMahon tells us. Yeah, your commentary team is the aforementioned Vince McMahon, joined by the macho man Randy Savage and Rowdy Roddy Piper. <laughs> that crew, my <laughs> God, just the visual as we see them green screened in front of a blurry crowd of these three men, uh, Randy Savage on the left, Vince McMahon in the middle, and Rowdy Roddy Piper on the right. I, I'm just, as I see this, I'm thinking, wow, this is either going to be really entertaining with these two men providing color commentary for Vince McMahon, or it's going to be an absolute train wreck because it's it's testing the bounds of whether you can ever have too much personality on the screen or in your ears at one time. I already don't like a three-man booth yeah. in my commentary team. And and uh, you've got the Macho Man and, and Roddy Piper who uh, both can can talk and, and can go. Forces and of have nature. To, it, they have things to say. Yeah, It's like the verbal equivalent of having an F5 tornado <laughs> and like a magnitude 10 earthquake, uh, which I guess will be apropos coming up later uh, on the microphone with Vince McMahon, uh, who's not exactly your traditional play-by-play guy in the middle. So yeah, as I write down, wow, these three personalities are completely insane. Uh, then they, they run down the card. And one of the things that we'll have on this program is the funeral parlor segment with longtime friend of the program, at least we're a big fan of him in his other incarnation. It is Paul Bearer, sadly not Percy Pringle, uh, there is a boss man on the show, but it's not him. It's not it's not, uh, not the boss man, Percy Pringle. If you go back to our Florida Championship Wrestling uh, episode that we reviewed earlier in season two, here you will hear us uh, fall in love with and learn about the talents of Percy Pringle. There, the future Paul Bear. Yeah. Yes, here he is, Paul Bear, the man with the urn and the pal face and the jet black hair that is the manager of The Undertaker. So that is one of the things we have to look forward to. Uh, but the first thing that we have to look forward to is some hard times. <laughs> well, yeah, let's before we get into the opening match, I want to set the stage of where we are chronologically here. Where are we in 1991? Uh, we saw that Hulk Hogan's the WWF champion in our patriotic opening. Uh, that's because we are just on the heels of WrestleMania 7. So WrestleMania 7 had just taken place. Which uh, that took me a second to figure out as we watched this show because they don't really talk about it that much. And there's some of the, the angles or these stories are continuations from that, which I'm assuming is a way of just 
you know, the immediate post WrestleMania house show loop usually is still is all that. Yep. It's rematches. I mean, exactly. they called it, I don't think at this point, but years later and for quite a few years, it was the WrestleMania revenge tour. And you'd get about six weeks going around the country of WrestleMania rematches. Exactly. And that's, that's really where a lot of this was just continuations of the WrestleMania feuds. Um, Macho Man had been retired by the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 7, so that's why he's on the commentary team. However, reading the re- the reading the results from these tapings, uh he wrestled on every single taping. So, wow. <laughs> uh he was he was retired but still still working uh a lot of these matches. So, it was uh, uh that was strange and doing commentary here. And so that's where we are with uh, we'll get to some of the feuds uh, at the end of the show. At, after this is done, I'll, I'll kind of talk about some of the angles that were shot at at it around the same time to continue that. So uh, for now, let's go through this show. The opening match you mentioned, we're doing hard times. It's Babyface, Big Boss Man, with his which is never not weird. <laughs> no, his his uh, hard time music. And uh, he's 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 beloved by the people. He's he comes out and he's taking on Pez Watley, that Pez Watley. <laughs> yes, the pistol himself. Uh, some eight years after being one half of a team that squashed the Road Warriors, <laughs> I'm guessing that's why the Road Warriors here on this episode only appeared via uh, taped interview, not in arena. They were concerned that Pez Watley might once again shatter their image as the toughest men in pro wrestling. But yes, here Pez Watley is just presented as a total jobber. He's just the guy in the ring that is the almost unnamed opponent here for the big boss man. I also like to always note or take note of uh, the big boss man's body type at any given time because we've talked about it before on different episodes whether it be him as big boss man against Hulk Hogan in that very memorable cage match at Saturday night's main event, Uh, going back to Starcade 86 as big Bubba Rogers. He more than any other wrestler. I feel like from that era, his weight fluctuated so dramatically. There would be times where he looked upwards of 400 pounds and other times where you'd see him and he'd be like, wow, he looked so much taller because he had gotten skinnier and you could actually see that he was like a tall lanky guy this is definitely uh more on the thin side for the boss man and he was moving well here yeah he was uh he was in great shape and he starts by throwing pez chest first into the buckles rolls him up i thought this might be it but yes. it was only a two count yeah he had a short clothesline got that roll up and pez bells to the floor which i liked because it was just a little bit of like okay we're showing pez is a more competent pro wrestler than your usual job, or he has some ring savvy, some ring awareness. He rolls to the floor. At this point, we get another hallmark of WWF superstars of wrestling, the inset promo. The inset promo. We got him in every single match here tonight. Yes. In a lot of ways, the match was just a vehicle to have that inset promo uh, more than the actual in-ring competition. Uh, It is the Mountie. He uh, he's with Jimmy Hart and he says that he represents international law enforcement is what he says he represents. Uh, and he says that he'll show the boss man how he treats local cops. Yeah. He does not care for the local cops. Um, no. no big right hands by the boss man. He still throws a great punch here in 1991. 
neckbreaker and boss man slam. This one's over. After the match, he handcuffs Pez Watley. And I'm like, does he still do this? Yeah, as the baby his, face. As a baby face? Because his, his heel persona was after the match, you'd do some hard time, but he'd handcuff you to the rope and then he'd beat you with the nightstick. Uh, yeah, we detailed that in that primetime episode when he and Akeem uh, were involved in a squash match to open that show. And he, he did exactly that. The thoughts that you were having... It's exactly what was going through the crowd as we see a shot of two women ostensibly friends. And there's one woman who is just full of bloodlust. She wants <laughs> Big Boss Man to beat Pez Watley senseless while he's handcuffed. And there's another woman who is just as adamant in the opposite direction, basically screaming, no, don't do it. And like waving her hands back and forth, like trying to call him off. So that <laughs> that was amusing. I also enjoyed the uh, the brief conversation between Vince McMahon and Randy Savage at the beginning of the match where Vince just casually asks Randy Savage if he's ever been to Cobb County, Georgia, uh, the home of the big boss man. And Savage, even more casually, just says, no, never. <laughs> and yeah, your babyface boss man does not beat him with the nightstick. She got her wish in the front row there. And so he's... He's, he 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 does not engage in police brutality, but he does engage in like unlawful detainment. Yes, Vince says that he was using psychological tactics yeah. against his opponent. <laughs> so that's yes, handcuffs are psychological, not physical. Here yeah. in the WWF in 1991, we then go to a truly insane segment. As first, it, it's we go to WWF update from the pages. Of the World Wrestling Federation magazine. It's exactly. update with mean Gene Okerlund. Gene says that Andre the Giant is front page news. We we then go to a scene in a bar, and sensational Sherry comes up to Andre the Giant. Wait, she Andre's basically... sitting there at the bar with Arnold Skolan. Yes. And... Well, we never yeah, we never actually see his face, or we right. barely do, but yes. He's sitting at the bar with Arnold Skoland. Uh, she basically comes up and just shoves Arnold out of yeah, the she way. Kick, she kicks him, kicks him out <laughs> to talk to Andre at the bar. Yeah, and she, she says, what a man. And she, she says she wants to be his manager. And she says she'll do anything to, to get it. She'll do anything to be able to be his manager. And then Andre says, anything? And, oh, and in the this- creepiest way possible it was so creepy creepy like in terms of how he sounded but even more this extreme close-up we get a camera switch to this extreme close-up of a googly-eyed yes uh, giddy bugging andre the giant big smile creepy and what does the man do he grabs sensational sherry puts her in a hammer lock bends her over the bar yep and proceeds to spank her he does. Not, only, not only does he do this, we get a camera change so that this camera switch now is showing from directly behind Sensational Sherry. Uh, we get the view as Andre the Giant spanks her in the bar. She leaves angry, and Andre just keeps drinking with Arnold Skolan. This <laughs> yeah, was Arnold a comes back. weird segment, and that was the entire update segment. That was it. it- it was truly bizarre. Like, 
we have Gene saying an inside look from the pages of World Wrestling Federation magazine. We go to the bar. Andre the Giant sexually assaults Sensational Sherry. Mm-hmm. We go to commercial. We come back, and here comes the Undertaker. We the next thing we hear is his his bell tolling, and we're on our way to the next segment. Yeah, yeah, like it. It, it was it was so weird. They. Uh... Accompanied by Paul Bearer, The Undertaker makes his way out. His opponent, Larry Ludden. <laughs> yes, Larry Ludden definitely looked exactly like a jobber should look. I'm just going to say off the bat, I loved everything, everything about this segment. Larry Ludden just being a total loser. <laughs> yes. The Undertaker being terrifying. Uh, children, we get these, these multiple shots of children in the crowd looking absolutely frightened like they're just frozen in fear close-ups of their faces as they're just not moving they're not blinking they look terrified and the best part about this is that vince mcmahon randy savage and roddy piper all sound completely different here calling this match they are they're very reserved they're they're quiet it's as though in a not like overdone way, they themselves are scared and intimidated of and by the Undertaker. Yeah, this is peak monster Undertaker where he does no selling whatsoever. He's got his classic look with Paul Bearer. This is this is uh, at, at the peak of his. Uh, destruction here and and it's the most undertaker he ever was 100 percent. and yeah like you mentioned um they're putting over the seriousness of this guy and uh and and you know he's he they were talking about his uh feud and what he had done to the ultimate warrior this was uh, was a match for a backdrop for that the most memorable angles of my childhood maybe the most memorable wwf angle that i can recall and i would have been about just under 10 years old around this time, they, they spent quite a lot of time talking about the funeral parlor segment where the undertaker attacked the ultimate warrior and then locked him in the casket. And this was, if you remember, it was an incredible, incredible segment because they lock, uh, they lock the ultimate warrior in the casket. And then this goes on, I believe if I remember correctly, over the course of several segments where you have Tony Gurria and all the other WWF officials coming out from the back trying to get the casket open. They can't. If I remember, there's some sort of, you know, whether it was a saw or something else, like they have to bring out actual, like, tools to get this thing open. And then when they open it, uh, you know, the entire uh, the entire inside of the casket is completely shredded from uh, the Ultimate Warrior desperately trying to get out. That's right, and they had to uh, perform CPR on the Ultimate yes. Warrior uh, afterward. And uh, yeah, I went back and because I remember that from vividly as a child, so I went back and read uh, Dave Meltzer's review of that angle uh, in the Wrestling Observer newsletter, <laughs> and uh, he was l- less impressed than uh, childhood <laughs> me was uh, because the the doctors performing CPR were, like you mentioned, Pat Patterson and Tony Gurria, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah, yeah. From the local medical facility. I get it because uh, as, as I got older, I would 
see Dr. Sergeant Slaughter out there and know that this was not as serious of an angle. Yeah. So no, this was, uh, so they were putting over the entire time. This match was a backdrop to them talking about, they still can't believe what had happened to the ultimate warrior at the hands Piper, of the undertaker. Piper had, I thought maybe the most effective line or the effective, most effective couple of lines of any announcer on this show where he starts talking about those 10 seconds between consciousness and unconsciousness and what that must have felt like for the ultimate warrior when he was inside that casket. And I just thought it was very well done. And they, in some ways they did the impossible and that they made something so over the top between two incredibly cartoonish characters seem very like, real and psychologically terrifying uh you know i was very impressed yeah and instead of because the warrior's out obviously selling this injury instead of getting the inset promo from the warrior we got an inset promo from paul bear and the undertaker talking about how they locked the ultimate warrior in the casket and the announcers also throughout this match speculate about basically does the ultimate warrior want to fight the undertaker you know, he it's not even as much will he have the opportunity, but if he's given the match, will he take it? In the ring, we see Taker with his big flying clothesline, which is always impressive, especially He got this... more air more air here on this flying clothesline than Kane got off the top rope with that yes, flying clothesline-like maneuver at the WWE ECW show that we reviewed <laughs> earlier in the season. Taker to the top, does his rope walk, Clubbing blow to the back of the head, hits the tombstone, and it's over. Paul Bearer then, in the ring, pulls out a body bag, and they put Larry into the body bag, and all the commentators are disgusted by this. Take a look at this. Oh. What do they do? What's that? Oh, it's not what I think they're doing. It's exactly what it is. Is that Guys, a gar- garbage that's a, bag? That's a body bag. Yeah, that's what they're doing right there. I Get think. out. Well, they're putting... They're opponent unconscious, and they're putting him in a body bag. Look at that. That's ridiculous. Oh, man. These guys, I wash my hands right there. They're trying to get noticed, and they definitely have been noticed. They put him in there. Ah, come on. You defeat your opponent, put him in a body bag, and then beat him up some more? What kind of a man is this? Let's go back to the replay. Yes, they're disgusted, but it's not in like a... Oh, you son of a bitch. You know, like, it's not that. It's more of a, like, they're disgusted and they're also in disbelief that, you know, this is what they're seeing, that, you know, that they're putting the opponent in the body bag, that their undertaker stomps him in the body bag afterward. And then we get this tremendous replay of the tombstone, and the camera is zoomed in on the undertaker's feet. So you can see him get all the way up on his tippy toes, before he drops down to his knees and tombstones this guy directly into the mat. I really like that. I thought that was a very different type of replay. Sean Mooney's in the event center. Which is different from WWF magazine or WWF update in that it's basically in the same control room, but it's from a straight on angle instead of like a diagonal angle. The warlord and slick cut a promo. But before that, Sean Mooney calls several times the undertaker the advance man for the grim reaper and it's at this point that i note in my mind that sean mooney is 
like the prototype for Byron Saxton in that. Yes. He says throughout this show, and I'm sure part of it is it's actually, he's just the avatar for Vince McMahon. Correct. He says so like his delivery is incredible. He's so good at his job, but the things that he has given to say are things that no human being alive would ever say. And I had forgotten or had not realized that, that like that type of weird WWE speak existed this far back in the company. And it in many ways was centralized here with, uh, with Sean Mooney. Yeah. I didn't realize it either. It's some of the pet peeves that, that we have about a lot of, uh, you know, 2020, 2021, uh, WWE is some of the WWE speak that we, that we hear from announcers, from interviewers, or- 2010 go back to that wwe ecw episode and listen to our our descriptions our direct quotes of what byron saxton said as they were running down the royal rumble card and yeah we were surprised that this was still a problem in 2010 we continue to go back and it's yeah it's a problem into the 90s and 19 uh, years prior to that that show in 2010 we have the exact same thing happening here with sean mooney in the event center so the warlord and slick cut a promo. Oh God! His his being the warlord. The slick is a, a treasure, but the warlord, his cadence is so annoying. It's he, I, it's he yells, so weird. Then he talks normal. Then he yells. Then he talks normal. Then he no yells. No transition. And so on and so on. Let me give you an introduction to what the warlord is all about. Take a good look at this body right there. Because it's the biggest body in the World Wrestling Federation. I have waited a long time and a shot for any title. It's almost sing-song in a weird way without having any melody at all. Because as you said, he'll talk very normal and then he'll get really mad. And then he'll talk very normal and then get really mad. But it's not in like a unsettling Cactus Jack way. It's like in a in a way of someone had just told him five seconds before you need to be quiet and then you need to get angry. Oh my and God. He it had, up and he had, it down, was not and natural. And, and it's, it's again, it's actually really funny that we got this episode shortly after that WWE or yeah, the WWE ECW episode where I, I had compared uh, Ezekiel Jackson <laughs> to <right>. the warlord <laughs> and the promo that big Zeke cut on that show is certainly analogous to the promo here from the Warlord. Uh, like you said, Slick is right there. He is an absolute treasure. Why is the Warlord talking? Oh, it is brutal. The, the whole reason Slick is there, the whole reason you have a manager, is to cover for a guy that can't talk. Yeah, basically all they said is they want a championship. And then we cut to a <laughs> promo from... Uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine. I don't know this... what's more disappointing, seeing a Greg the Hammer Valentine come out for a match or come out for a promo. Um, oh, a promo. By far, this, <laughs> this promo. This awful. Oh. Horrendous. So much worse than that promo that he cut on that All-Star Wrestling show from 1982. And that one was just long that. and meandering and just kind of a little almost poser-like. This was just, it was the entire time on the verge of completely falling apart. He, uh, 
he starts his promo with, and I quote, Greg Valentine right here. He says, Greg Valentine right here saying I have survived another WrestleMania and the wrestling is going to go on and on. And he says a bunch of other things. He talks about winning the Intercontinental title for Mr. Perfect. And oh, well, wouldn't first, that be perfect? No, first he's like, hey, I'm willing to go for the tag titles if I can find a partner. Yeah, if uh, I can find someone who wants a tag with yeah, me. I'm like, good the- luck, dude. Nobody. <laughs> and then, uh, and then it he's also like, it's like a little pathetic. Like he's it was like, super oh, pathetic. I don't, I don't know if I can find anyone to tag with me. Like he's trying to talk like he's this championship level wrestler, and then he's basically lamenting the fact that nobody on the roster wants to be his friend. <laughs> yeah, and then he follows it up with, "So if I can't find a partner and go for the tag <laughs> titles, I might as well go for Mister Perfect's IC title because uh, I used to be an IC champion back in the day." And then, and and. And then that was it. And he didn't mention at all the world title because no. he knows he's not in that good of wrestling shape. As he Something mentioned. had changed from 1982 to 1991. In 1982, he was all, all you know, full steam ahead, all systems go to go after Bobby Backlund, as he said, for that world title. Clearly, he was unsuccessful in that endeavor, and he has now realized, to some extent, his station in life. This promo ends with him saying... I'm fighting and I'm proud. It also was, it was so weird because you could not tell at all via this promo, whether he was a heel or a babyface. The only clue was that he was thinking of challenging Mr. Perfect, which I guess means that Greg, the hammer Valentine was a babyface. Oh, I forget that we reviewed a show where Greg the Hammer Valentine was a babyface, and oh, it was gross yes. and weird. And uh, yeah. it was not <laughs> not good, not advisable. <laughs> oh no, that was that WrestleFest. Was that the WrestleFest tape? The, uh, it very well may have been the WrestleFest tape. Yeah, so there's been so much Greg the Hammer Valentine. On too this much podcast, randomizer. Way too much Greg the Hammer Valentine. One podcast where we reviewed multiple Greg the Hammer Valentine matches. Uh, that was the most show. unusual matches tape. In the archives, you'll never find someone more upset at multiple <laughs> Greg the Hammer Valentine matches than this guy. Jeez. Well, uh, then so we have he's the a worst. Man we move on we, to no a more second worst. The genius. And the first thing I can never see Lenny Poffo without thinking two things. First, that he was under contract to WCW for a six-figure sum for multiple years and never <laughs> wrestled a match for them. Uh, in the uh, in the mid to late 90s and also and if you're a big audio nightmare listener out there particularly a fan of new japan pro wrestling you'll remember this his brief run as in two shows doing play-by-play for new japan pro wrestling in like 2018 or 2019 he one of he was following Don Callis, right? This was like after Don Callis left. They were trying out different guys. Yes, after Don Callis was not going to be appearing there as much. They were using a bunch of different guys. Excalibur before AEW did a few shots. They had Caprice Coleman, all different sorts of people. Uh, and then they had Lanny, Lanny Poffo. <laughs> it was bar none the worst thing I have ever heard on a pro wrestling show when it comes to commentary. The worst so that's all i can think of here as i see the genius and what does he have because he's the genius he has a poem for us all howard finkel tells us 
It's Jim the Hacksaw Duggar Ooh. and his mighty two-by-four uh -oh. versus me. I am the genius with intelligence galore. I'll use my convoluted wit and take him by surprise. And then I steal his two-by-four and straighten out his eyes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so after this poem... Uh, first of all, he's announced as from Downers Grove, Illinois, which always gets a pop from me. Uh, yes. His shoot hometown of suburban, western suburban Chicago. Uh, and, and I'm watching him do that poem, and he's, I just can't stop thinking, like, how are you the brother of the macho man Randy Savage? How, how is that possible? How well, did... he's Keith Gretzky. <laughs> he you is. know, there's always... Every every you know great sports star has a lesser brother who like <laughs> barely made it or made it to like one or two levels below and probably would have not even made it that far if he wasn't the brother and you have never seen a more uh, picture perfect example of that than the genius Lanny Poffo here as his brother uh, the incredibly talented Macho Man Randy Savage is on the call. So he he's going to steal Duggan's two-by-four and straighten out his eyes. And here comes Hacksaw. <laughs> Hacksaw Jim Duggan making his way out with a big American flag. And we get an inset promo here from Colonel Mustafa, <laughs> who is the Iron Sheik. But he's no longer Iranian. He's Iraqi here because because of the that Gulf happens War. a lot. Of, if you follow geopolitics, <laughs> the idea of that that defection happening is is yeah, six to one, half a dozen the other. Yeah, it happens. All yes, the time. I say I say that as sarcastically as humanly possible. <laughs> um, maybe less likely than Sergeant Slaughter becoming an Iraqi sympathizer, uh, as they called him. But yes, Colonel Mustafa here basically says hacksaw has to go through him. And it's at this point that I remember and realize that the only purpose of Jim Duggan on these shows during this time period is to be the stand-in for Hulk Hogan. Yep. He, he, yeah. he is Hulk Hogan when Hulk Hogan doesn't appear, and that's all he is here. Uh, and then Vince at one point just casually says, Ultimate Warrior is hot on the heels of Sergeant Slaughter this weekend. Yes. So that's... That is their very non-specific way of telling you, the uh, the wrestling fan, that there's a good chance that if the WWF is in your town this weekend, you're going to see the Ultimate Warrior versus Sergeant Slaughter. Vince also mentions that Colonel Mustafa is a former WWF champion. He's not pretending that he's not the Iron Sheik here, which yeah, I found which was makes it even really weird. Because the WWF loved to pretend that guys weren't guys that everyone knew they were like, right. that was their deal. That was, that was what they did. But here they were like half doing it, half not doing it. We do have to give a fashion report for the first time on this show as the <laughs> genius Lanny has yeah. <laughs> truly terrible gear. He is wearing an Andre, the giant style, you know, one shoulder singlet uh, with, you know, the, like just the short tights combination, short trunks. Yeah. Like they're, yes. they're, they're not. Yeah. With there's the no, there's no the legs to them. These strap. are, if you're, if you're describing them as either boxers or briefs, these are, these are briefs with yes. the one, the one shoulder singlets and they are the most pure sky blue color you have ever seen in your life. Yeah. It's, they're almost like, uh, it's like, a neon blue highlighter. Yeah. 
if blue uh, could be neon yes it would be this this year it, it's like an electrified blue sky yes the uh the san jose sharks would say tone it down a bit uh <laughs> yes. the, this was a very very bright uh outfit for the genius and really all this match was was duggan slamming him three point stance clothesline and a three count that was it. Nothing. No, not yeah. even a punch thrown by uh, the genius in this one. Yeah, I had forgotten how the genius, while he read his poem and he was a name to some extent, he was absolutely a jobber. Like he 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 was not getting any more offense than Larry Ludden here. Uh, that was his lot in life, and he should have just been happy to have a job. Uh, and I'm sure he was, like I said, years later in WCW where they paid, they signed him, and then forgot about him for like half a decade. We go from that to some sort of commercial for what Vince McMahon says is the latest in pay-per-view, something called Hot Ticket, which I have a very foggy memory of this being uh, like a series of cut-rate pay-per-views that that the WWF and other entertainment outlets right. would offer, where it was basically like a nine ninety-five pay-per-view, and I it was like an hour long, and it was just highlights of stuff and this was wrestlemania's history and heroes vince says race to your phone to order this so uh yeah don't order this uh the 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 hot ticket this week was mania's history and heroes so uh didn't look good back to sean mooney in the event center we get a power and glory promo with slick this was weird I guess so, they're teasing a breakup here. Yeah, Power and Glory, and if you uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's Hercules. He was the power, and then it's Paul Glory. He was the glory. <laughs> Paul Roma, but deep cut for longtime listeners of this podcast, you'll know what we're talking about when we say Paul Glory. Uh, Slick is with them, and Slick is talking. He's talking about like wanting to get a title shot. He's hyping these men up. They are not paying attention to him at all. Instead. Paul Roma slash glory is just ogling Hercules biceps and slick is not slick is not impressed by this No, And so slick, just he's trying to cut a promo, but with Roma just talking about Herc's arm over him, he storms off. He just walks off. <laughs> so, uh, but then he comes back at the end as the interview's over. So he doesn't get to say anything either. So this yes. was, this was weird. It was different. The Nasty Boys are the WWF Tag Team Champions here, and they cut a promo. (laughs) They do. They do. (laughs) But the best thing about this, and one of my favorite things on this entire show, is that this promo starts with all three men, Brian Knobs, Jerry Sags, and Jimmy Hart between them. They all have their backs to the camera. And Jimmy Hart does the most ridiculous, exaggerated thing as he jumps and spins in midair, and then before he even lands, starts cutting a promo at the camera. I don't know why this made me laugh so much, but I lost it. <laughs> um, I do want to mention here that looking at these WWF tag team titles, these are beautiful belts also. Oh, like, the this... best. The best WWF tag titles ever by a significant margin. Yeah, these are fantastic. They've got a globe on them with the word, the word world in red popping off the blue with the gold it fantastic belts and they were they were big like 
Uh, yeah, really. The exact opposites in every way of the WWE ECW title, which as we talked about was basically (laughs) a passing gray cloud attached to a leather strap. Oh, just, yeah, that belt's the worst. These belts are beautiful. Um, then we, uh, yeah, basically they said, we're going to slap the muscles out of you talking about the Legion of Doom. I hate the nasty boys promos. I, yeah, they're terrible. Cannot. Cannot deal with them. Brian Knobs is one of the most annoying characters in pro wrestling history for me. And then Jerry Sags is just usually unintelligible. He bothers me a little bit less as a character, but just, yeah, I don't want to see them. I don't want to hear them. I want them to go away. And thankfully they do because the next thing we hear is the great music, all time, great WWF entrance music of the intercontinental champion, Mr. Perfect. I'm glad you mentioned the theme song because we've talked about the Mount Rushmore of great theme songs and yeah Mr. Perfect's theme song has to have a place on there oh absolutely it's not only is it great it it's one of those theme songs that the second you hear it it you associate it with Mr. Perfect and it just feels 100% right for him it's it's I don't know it's, it's like sort of slow majestic synthy thing but it just it, it just nails everything about the guy and the character, uh, you know. And I noted right here that to me, if you're looking at the absolute prototype of what a no pun intended perfect intercontinental champion was, it is Kurt Hennig, Mister Perfect. One hundred percent. And we hear Howard Finkel announce that he's making his way out with the perfect manager, Bobby the Brain <laughs> Heenan, which. Got a good chuckle out of me. And he also has, around his waist, I would argue, the perfect Intercontinental Championship belt. We've talked about, on previous episodes this season, some truly hideous designs for the Intercontinental title, I believe, on that Raw 2000 episode. Correct. That just nondescript, incredibly lame championship belt. This is, without a doubt, the, uh, uh, the best version of the Intercontinental title. And I would make an argument that I would put it only second to the NWA world television title as the best looking uh, and most iconic secondary championship belt, uh, you know, in, in my time as a wrestling fan. hundred percent. And it, yeah, it is absolutely a gorgeous championship here and we get perfect wearing the belt, get going up to the second. He's on the middle rope. He tosses the towel behind him over his head and Heenan catches it with a big smile on his face. And then <laughs> they're so great together. Those so two great. guys, just, just such a great blend of the two characters. And immediately when that happened, it made me think of the videos, the vignettes introducing Mr. Perfect to the WWF, the greatest vignettes that the WWF has ever oh, done. Hands without up. a doubt, him hitting like three pointers from across the basketball court backwards, uh, him, Throw wasn't it like where he threw he a football threw across the field. Himself a pass, yes. yes threw, he, he threw a hail mary to himself. He's running track like, and doing like, uh, yeah, he's doing hurdles and everything. And yeah, yes. just, it, no, the, he's playing baseball, and you've got like Wade Boggs going like, wow, what a guy! This guy's amazing. <laughs> it it was those vignettes were incredible. Just if, if you haven't seen them, go do yourself a YouTube favor and head there and look at. Mr. Perfect vignettes. They were uh, the best thing WWF has ever done for uh, vignettes. Absolutely. 
Well, and also, like, when I was watching this, and when I was watching him, it just made me think, just, I guess, reflect on a lot of times when WWF would bring in guys that were, you know, relatively big deal, guys that were fully formed wrestler, fully formed character from a different promotion, and then give them a new WWF character, sometimes it just wouldn't work. It would feel weird. You know, you think of Barry Windham as the Widowmaker as one example. Here, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig, I should say, was born to be Mr. Perfect. He was absolutely absolutely born to be this character. We've talked about both on the free feed and on at least one episode on the Patreon feed. We've seen uh, Kurt Hennig in the AWA, you know, different forms, him uh, wrestling Nick Bockwinkle, uh, him teaming with his dad, Larry the Axe Hennig versus the Road Warriors. And you could see glimpses of what he was going to be. Uh, here in this match, and it is this is a very, very quick, basic squash match with him versus Randy Taylor, uh, who is just a tremendous <laughs> borderline untrained jobber with a horrendous hairline and a yellow ring jacket. But Mr. Perfect in this match looks like the greatest athlete in the history of professional wrestling. There is one spot which we'll get to, which I rewound and watched three times just because it was so simple, but just beautiful in terms of the, the fluidity and the athleticism that Kurt Henning showed. We'll get there. Yeah. He, uh, so after he tosses the towel, he's still there. He spits his gum into the air out of his <laughs> mouth and just swats it with his hand. It, it is, I, as a kid, I would practice that so many times, uh, <laughs> to be like Mr. Perfect. That was so cool. Um, he's the best. So you mentioned his opponent, Randy Taylor. We'll do a quick, fashion corner this guy is a great gross jobber we love our jobbers just hideous and this guy fits the bill he's he's got terrible balding hair no body at all and just plain black short trunks and again that like yellowish gold jacket (laughs) that now you would find at a thrift store and probably now like it would be something cool for kids to wear uh, for night on the town, but here he just looked like he looked like the high school gym teacher that thought he was 30% cooler than he was. Perfect. Just pushes him into the corner and chops him hard, takes him down with a snapmare, and perfect flips over him with his neck snap. Oh, the rolling neck snap. That was my favorite move as a kid. I don't know why, but I loved that move and I wanted everybody to use it. I remember thinking, how much better Mr. Perfect did it than Terry Taylor, though, when Terry Taylor uh, would go on to, again, be a heel in WCW as the tailor-made man. He would do this, and it was it was no Mr. Perfect. No. Perfect with a leapfrog, and then he hits a perfect dropkick. This was awesome. Just This leapfrog was incredible. So Randy Taylor here, who uh, my notes on him were, this guy is so small and pathetic. <laughs> That, which I think pretty much nails it, but he goes for a backdrop and all in one motion as perfect as bouncing off the ropes. He it's not like a leapfrog where you're just standing and you jump and you don't cover any ground. He in full stride leapfrogs across and over Randy Taylor hits the ropes. And again, in full stride all in one motion hits this incredible running drop kick right to the face that's the spot I was talking about where it's just like, wow, this guy is an unbelievable athlete. Then he yells, 
Now you're going to see a perfect plex. He hooks the fisherman suplex, gets the three count. Heenan towels off Mr. Perfect <laughs> after the match like he broke a sweat. And he's yeah, got a serious look on his face. Heenan's got this serious look on his face, toweling off Perfect. I was howling <laughs> with laughter. Who does not have a bead of sweat on his body, which that's where the comedy comes in. I will say that comedy much more effective than this terrible Davy Boy Smith inset promo where oh, yeah, that uh, he's like, it's Winston. His dog is talking for him. It's dumb. It's bad. And I, it, it's also another one of these things where we have an inset promo with Davy Boy Smith here during this Mr. Perfect match. And so they're kind of telling us that Davy and Perfect are going to wrestle, but they don't explicitly say that. So we're just left to draw a conclusion that their paths might cross. Yeah, I was, uh, I was loving the end of this segment as we get a slow motion replay, but we get a slow motion replay that shows Heenan was just polishing the icy title with the towel yes. the entire match. It was so awesome. Just a close up of Heenan polishing up the icy title. This, this whole, se- I, I, this, this made the show for me. This was such a great segment. Absolutely. No, they are a flawless act, those two together. We get a promo from WBF competitor, <laughs> World Bodybuilding Federation competitor, Barry DeMay. And he talks about his calves, and he's he's a bodybuilder. We're and... getting close-ups of his calves. And the whole time I'm seeing this, I'm thinking, this is just Vince McMahon. Like, this is this is an avatar for Vince McMahon. So for those unfamiliar with the WBF, uh, Vince McMahon started the World Bodybuilding Federation in 1990, the end of 1990. He uh, announced that he was forming a competitive bodybuilding company here and the WBF. And so they ran some competitions uh, some bodybuilding a, competitions. They did a, a pay-per-view. That's what this promo is. It is Barry DeMay trying to hype us up to order the WBF pay-per-view at the Taj Mahal where the competition is just guys flexing. The other really only noteworthy thing about the WBF other than that it was a miserable failure is that that was how they initially introduced Lex Luger that is into correct. being in the WWF. Lex Luger was scheduled to participate on the 1990 competition on pay-per-view, but he was involved in a motorcycle accident prior to the event. So instead, he appeared on the pay-per-view for an interview via satellite on the pay-per-view broadcast. So uh, should have been an omen for Luger's WWF run. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> I, w- I also just want to note how... Coming out of this segment, Vince McMahon sounds like the saddest man in the world trying to hype the WBF while also sounding completely resigned to that this venture, which I'm sure if he could choose, he would <laughs> rather be promoting this than pro wrestling. A hundred percent. Yeah. He is so resigned to the fact that this has been an utter failure. Yeah. They would eventually try to bring in Lou Ferrigno to be the star of the WBF. 
think of how many fewer Comic Cons we all would have seen Lou Ferrigno at <laughs> if the WBF really took off. I just always remember going to those and like it was two things. It was WWF Superstar Virgil or Wrestling Superstar Virgil. <laughs> and then with a slightly bigger crowd, which would be one would be a bigger crowd than Virgil would draw. You'd have Lou Ferrigno in the booth next to him signing autographs. Yeah, July 15th, 1992, the WBF was disbanded. Uh, and we're also told that Bodybuilding Lifestyle Magazine will be available this Tuesday. <laughs> yes, with Barry DeMay on the cover. Good so. times. There you go. We go from that. We, it's also a tremendous visual, and we go from close-ups of Barry DeMay's <laughs> bulging calves to the next human being that we see is an extreme close-up of Paul Bearer. His guest on the Funeral Parlor interview segment this week is Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh, Piper's coming out with a slight limp, which Vince calls out. But he says he doesn't have the crutch anymore, so that must mean he's ready to go. This was around the time of Roddy Piper having to have, I guess, his first of many hip surgeries. Yep. Because then uh, apparently like the angler, the bit had been that Ted DiBiase, who he was feuding with, uh, had said that uh, Roddy Piper was the Bo Jackson of the WWF. This was around the time that Bo Jackson, the legendary two sport athlete, uh, had had his thing was like necropsy of the hip basically his hip was withering away to nothing it was literally dying and so that was the uh, comparison they were drawing here piper says to paul bear a little sunshine would be in order friend and then he makes some adams family jokes he talks about uh ted dibiase he's ranting and, and as you know he's completely incoherent at points as well Piper's yeah he says to do he says something about that when Ted DiBiase was born, your mom brought the limo out and changed your diapers there. When I was a kid, they cleaned my butt with sandpaper. sandpaper. I, had to, <laughs> I had to walk to school. Then he calls Ted DiBiase's girlfriend, who at this point, like, I don't know who he's talking about. And we eventually figure it out. He calls her the bride of Frankenstein. So he's talking about a defense system that he knows. And he tells... Paul Bearer to hit him from behind. He turns his back to Paul Bearer. He says, hit me. Uh, I see Virgil sneaking out behind Piper. Paul Bearer winds up his fist, but Virgil grabs Paul Bearer's fist. Well, and this then was I the weird it. thing about... Well, I the problem was when I was watching this, I had a completely different understanding of what was about to happen. I yes. did not realize... I had not... I, I didn't put the timeline together that Virgil had already... Uh, finally turned on Ted DiBiase. And so I thought what I see uh, Roddy Piper turn his back on Paul Bear and tell Paul Bear to hit him. And then I see Virgil creeping up from behind, holding something that looks like a briefcase. Yeah, I thought Vir I'm thinking, Virgil was going to hit him as well. well yeah, yeah, I'm thinking exactly what's going to happen is that as Roddy Piper is yelling for Paul Bear to hit him, Paul Bear is going to step aside and Virgil is going to waffle him with this briefcase looking structure. And I'm thinking, wow, that's perfect. This is awesome. I can't wait to see this. It's not what happened. Now, as soon as he grabbed his fist, I knew what was going on. The whole defense system thing made sense now. And of course he turns around. He's like, yeah, Virgil's my Patriot missile defense system. Well, yeah. Cause again, all the talk of the Gulf war. Yes. This was, everything is very Gulf war themed. And this was uh, yeah, the Patriot, 
those were supposed to stop the Scud missiles, yes. if, I, if I remember correctly, Correct. in the yeah. big in-air battle of the missiles. Uh, Virgil cuts a horrendous promo, <laughs> as he is wont to do. <sighs> Just a terrible... Talk about it, like a manager type that needed a manager. He pulls out a tray, like from catering, and he opens it up. He says it has a two-course meal, and there's a Ted DiBiase wrestling buddy, and there's another doll, which Virgil Virgil calls Scary Sherry. And that's where we figure out that, yes, Sherry Martell, Sensational Sherry, the woman who was just assaulted in the bar by Andre the Giant, is Ted DiBiase's girlfriend? I have no recollection again i was watching the product every week at this point and a lot of the things are burned into my memory i have no recollection of sensational sherry being paired with ted dibiase two course meal And I noticed you are too. Would you like a date, you witch? Hey, my name is Gary Sherry, and I need some money. Will you give me some, please? Oh, I've got lots of money, but no friends. Why don't two really ugly, gruesome people like us get together? You see, the idea is being that You want to pay the piper? Stand aside there, lumpy. Now, Piper uh, said his... Virgil's the only person he can trust and uh, they're coming to see DiBiase and they're meaner than the LAPD. So this was all very timely. Well, it was also very weird too, as you have Virgil, a black man who had been employed slash basically implied to be enslaved by by Ted DiBiase. He finally breaks free from Ted DiBiase and then now... He is friends with a man, Rowdy Rowdy Roddy Piper, who when he threatens Ted DiBiase, says that they are meaner than the LAPD. A reference to the LAPD beating Rodney King, a black man, which then was the, the, eventually, when the verdicts came out in that trial, the, the impetus for the LA riots. It was just a bizarre way to end this promo. Main event time. We've got Earthquake with Jimmy Hart taking on Jake the Snake Roberts. Jake puts the bag in the corner, slides into the ring, and Quake jumps him right away. Which is surprising because they tell us at the beginning of this match or at the beginning of this segment as the ring entrances are happening that Earthquake is afraid of snakes. So apparently he shares something with 1989 Andre the Giant. Yeah, Jake with a couple shots. Then he just grabs the bag and dumps the snake out. Earthquake bails to the outside. The match is somehow not officially underway at this point. Yeah, it has not started. Jimmy Hart is in the ring at first as all this is happening. Uh, It has not started. A bell has not rung. And like you said, this was almost instantaneous that the snake, Damien, is released from the bag. uh, And Earthquake... And Jimmy Hart bell. Not only do they bell from the ring, they bell down the uh, down the entranceway until a referee comes out. A second referee meets them at the end of the entranceway and tells them, "No, 
you must go back to the ring and wrestle where this giant venomous python constricting snake is. That is the work environment that you must compete in. This ref is so tough that he tells <laughs> Earthquake and Jimmy Hart this information and they have no other choice but to return to the ring. And so the that same bad badass ref that just convinced Earthquake and Jimmy Hart to turn it around, get back to the ring, he then gets in the ring. He helps Jake put the snake in the bag. This ref is more courageous than Earthquake. He's more courageous than Andre the Giant. This, he's not he's afraid courageous. of snakes. Than any of the jobbers on this uh, <laughs> on this show, clearly no Larry Ludden here, and and you're not uh, exaggerating. He gets in the ring, he tells Jake that you must put the snake away, and then he picks up the snake bag and yeah. holds it, hold open it open, like go ahead. for Jake to put this massive deadly snake in. This ref was a badass, as you said. Okay, snake in the corner. But the ref is now demanding that the snake be put under the ring. That was, that was weird. Not a good. Well, it, yeah, it was weird, there. and it was, yeah, it it was also an obvious because uh, I once this started, I remembered the angle that was coming very clearly because this was a, a pretty vivid memory as a child. But the second that they that the the instruction, the demand is to put the snake bag under the ring. It's like okay, I can see how this is going and how they're going to pull off the angle that they're about to do. Jimmy Hart distracts Jake and the earthquake attacks him from behind. Quake now takes the bag out from under the ring. The bag is in the ring and earthquake ties Jake's arms in the ropes. Andre, the giant style. Yes. That eight. Well, Andre, the giant style, maybe more appropriately iron Mike sharp style. (laughs) I was hoping that he was going to charge at Jake and Jake would get his foot up. Uh, that would have been better for Jake and his pet snake than what uh, what was about to happen. Jake's tied in the ropes. The highlight of this for me is Jimmy Hart taking down the referee. <laughs> Jimmy, I did yeah. not see that coming. This was straight out of MMA. Jimmy with a sweet <laughs> double leg takes down the ref, gets the mount, full control here for Jake over the ref. Uh, it clearly was the original actual referee of the match because if it was this it was, other ref, it wasn't the other ref. No, the other the ref, other had ref done would have work. like he's done in, the work for the day. He would have in mid takedown grabbed a guillotine and choked Jimmy Hart out. Quake puts the bag with the snake Damien in the middle of the ring. Earthquake pounds Jake a little bit, and he gets a running start. And well, bef- does before his... that, before that, it is he. It's great because. He gets up in Jake's face. And Jake is incredible here. He is tied in the ropes and he's slowly realizing what is about to happen. And like, it's not just the snake. Isn't just something he brings to the ring to terrorize his opponents. He loves this snake. It is his pet, like a beloved dog or cat. This is his best friend. And he realizes what's about to happen. So he's flailing, he's kicking his legs and you can clearly hear as Earthquake gets up in Jake's face, he says, and I quote, the quake is going to squash the snake. <laughs> Which he did. He gets a running start and squashes the snake in the bag by sitting on it. Oh, but that move camera... has a specific name, Jeremy. It's the Northern Exposure. Big Josh. <laughs> Big style. Josh. There you go. And so, uh, but the camera cuts away at the last second to a surprised Sean Mooney in the event center. We caught Sean Mooney by surprise. 
then we cut back to the ring to see Earthquake rolling off the bag. Jake is upset. Quake he's is crying. He's he's pleading. He's not even. It's not even like he's saying I'm going to kill you. He's no. He's pleading devastated with yeah. Earthquake to not do this. Vince screams, "Don't watch." Uh, yeah, well, I guess that was the first time he screams, don't watch. And as you said, it cuts to Sean Mooney, who is cringing in the studio. And another thing that I thought was great, a little touch. We talk about the little things here on this podcast, you know, adding to believability of something like this can be believable. But Sean Mooney, when they cut to the to the event center, he doesn't even have his earpiece in. Like his no, earpiece is hanging out of his ear because he wasn't expecting to be on the air. Quake's going to do it again, and we cut to the event center. Jake, that's his pet. That's his, that's part of Matt Okaroom. Okaroom again. All right. Although you did not see the senseless and deplorable act just committed by the earthquake, I'm sure you can surmise its outcome. I promise you, we will not return to the arena until the walking natural disasters rampage has ceased. Well, apparently, we are now going to return to ringside. But let me make it clear, we will return to the event center if the carnage continues. That bag is not moving right there. I can't tell the lie. Somebody get Jack out of there. Finally. Jack's hurt. Well, and he, but as he does it, it's a great shot too of the previous time we see it just like from the hard cam, like it's a guy doing a wrestling move. When they come back to the ring after Sean Mooney says, like, rest assured, if this gets out of control, we will cut away again so you don't see anything horrible. Uh, the camera shot is as Quake is bouncing back and forth across the ring, the camera is completely trained on Jake and seeing his reaction and his desperation and his despair. After the second squash, Jake is free from the ropes, and he's absolutely devastated in the ring. This angle, possibly the inspiration for Boots the Cats incident in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. That is what I was thinking as I was watching this. It was done so much better because Jake the Snake is shockingly better than (laughs) Boo Bradley. Bradley. (laughs) Who who would have thought going in that that would be the case? Jake was Uh, so good here. He opens the bag, he looks inside, and then he's selling the tragedy of the incident. And it was just an incredible job. What a super talent, Jake the Snake. Oh, yeah. His reaction... Like and the uh, the range of emotions just very quickly conveyed in his body language. Uh, maybe this will sound like a weird comparison, and the stories couldn't be more different. But when I was done watching this segment and just thinking about Jake the Snake here, all I could think of was this was maybe uh, right up there with Eddie Guerrero on that episode of SmackDown. Uh, in terms of sure. great performance, physical performances without doing a wrestling move, but just physically uh, conveying emotion and a range of emotions in a, re- in a very over the top segment, but doing it in a way that is not over the top. And is so believable. Like when you're watching Jake here, like I, I, again, I don't want snakes to die, but I don't have any emotional attachment to a snake. But when I'm watching this, like it's emotionally affecting as weird as that sounds. And it is completely, completely because of just how 
how incredible of a performer Jake the Snake Roberts is here. We go to another incredible performer in the ring, Bill Lucas, who I had I had to look it up. Uh, Talk this, about this guy's look. This guy. Uh, so I looked it up because I, I wasn't familiar with this jobber, Bill Lucas, here. This was his first WWF match. Wow. He wrestled three matches total in his career. This match, May 28th, 91 against the Bulldog. And the next day, May 29th, 91, as Bill Luger against Jake the Snake Roberts. And that's this man's career. <laughs> well, that it's it sounds surprising, but it really isn't. Because when you think about it, they were literally using almost completely untrained jobbers at times. I mean, the most tragic example of that is uh, the match with the Rockers. I cannot recall the guy's name. Was it Chuck Austin? I don't know. Maybe it wasn't Chuck Austin. It was something like that. The guy that got paralyzed uh, by a rocker dropper from yep. Marty Jannetty that had barely been trained and did not know how to take the move. I mean, that's what this Bill Lucas guy was here. And there is a rocker dropper at one point in this match, but thankfully it's taken incredibly safely. Yeah, his partner is an actual trained professional in Barry O, uh, the O standing for Orton, brother of the Ace Cowboy, uh, uncle to Randy Orton. This is uh, Barry Orton and Bill Lucas versus the Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. Tag team specialists, as we hear a half dozen times in this segment. Michael starts with Barry O. Barry whips Shawn to the buckles. He goes up and over as Barry comes underneath him. Then he sends Barry into the corner, and he tries to do the same move, but Shawn puts on the brakes, atomic drop, and clotheslines him. Yeah, I love that. I always like when you, when they have something like that where it's the... The spot happens, then the uh, sort of hapless heel tries to do the exact same spot and fails miserably. Good times. We're told it'll be the Rockers and the Nasty Boys for the tag titles next week on Superstars. So that's what that's that's the the model of the show that we talked about here. So you you have a a main event usually with an angle. You you could have title matches. You could have title changes on this show. So uh, Rockers versus Nasties for the tag titles next week. But then we randomly hear from the Orient Express in an inset promo. uh, And so they want to go after the Rockers, but we don't know when or where that's going to be happening. It's also weird because didn't they just wrestle the Rockers at Royal Rumble 91, if I'm not mistaken? That is correct. Yes. And uh, in a great match, one of the all time favorite uh, WWF tag matches. Wait, was that all the way back in 89? Maybe I'm getting confused. Maybe that was 80. There was, I remember there was a great tag team opening match at the Rumble in 89, but no, I guess it would have been 91. It would have been yeah, this, it was this fantastic or an Express Rockers tag team match. Double back elbow as Janetti and Lucas are in. Rocker dropper by Janetti. Tags in Michaels. Both men go to the top rope of adjacent corners. Double fist drop off the top for the win. And they hit it perfectly, which is a move that as uh, I can't remember whether it was Vince or, or Savage or Piper that said it. But basically, what other tag team would even try to do this was the uh, the message they were sending. And yeah, nobody else would. They hit it perfectly. It also reminded me of something similar they would try several times. And the degree of difficulty was significantly higher than this one. They would do a top rope double drop kick. 
when each guy would stand on yep. a different that corner and not try to hit two guys, but hit one guy. And I remember that. I mean, that's a very, very difficult thing to time. We get an IRS vignette. This is Mike Rotundo as Irwin R. Scheister, IRS. He calls you a tax cheat. You're as dishonest as a ledger, as a ledger sheet is long. He, he talks s- about cheats, tax evaders, and small-time hoodlums. Stamps the paper with a big audit stamp. Don't give me any excuses like, I mailed it off two weeks ago, or my husband just had a massive coronary and was in the hospital. My heart bleeds for you. You people are as dishonest as a ledger sheet is long. Fortunately, there are still some people in this country who are on the up and up. Wait a minute. No signature? Maybe this guy's got something to hide, too. Well, my question is just who is checking up on Erwin R. Scheister, IRS? I have two thoughts uh, on this, by the way. One is that I'm convinced this is Dave Meltzer's office. <laughs> yes. If you've ever seen the pictures of, of Dave's office, uh, with all due respect, Dave, this looked a lot like his office. Uh, the other thing was this was the absolute peak, or I guess Valley would maybe be a more accurate description of the early 90s era of WWF where it was wrestlers with other jobs. (laughs) Like when you think about it, you had IRS, the tax man, you had Thurman Sparky Plug, the race car driver, you had Duke the Dumpster Drossy, the trash man, you had the repo man who was a repo man. It was Goon who was a hockey player. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it was such a weird thing how like the character, like the template for like mid card guys in the WWF over, I don't know, like a five or six year span was it was a guy with some other job and that he was a wrestler. But like, why? Why, if he's, if you're the WWF and you're like the biggest wrestling company in the world and you're a star in that company, why do you still need to be a tax man? Why do you need to be a garbage man or, you know, the big boss man, a cop? Where does the big boss man find time to be a cop while he's wrestling every week? I just, I don't know. I hated that as a kid. It was so weird to me. It never made sense. And seeing IRS here uh, just brought all of those things home. We get event center promos. These are great because it's just dudes ranting at the camera, but they're in front of their giant logo on a green screen, which they're, I, I they're in front of a zoom background, basically. Like yes. I, <laughs> I want these backgrounds that I can have during meetings. I, I would be very happy to get these. Sergeant Slaughter still very Iraqi here, and he wants a rematch for the WWF Championship. I like how he talked about uh, Hulk Hogan sympathizers, which I just I don't know why, but that just made me laugh because the whole thing about him being an Iraqi sympathizer. He says, "Listen up, you scum, you slimes, you pukamaniacs, you Hulk Hogan sympathizers." He then says that peace is for pansies. That, oh, this is this is the other thing. When I talked about Sean Mooney earlier and the weird verbiage and these like odd nicknames, like again, comparing that to Byron Saxon in 2010, calling uh, uh, who was it? Calling Trent Beretta the Boy Wonder or calling Hurricane the Emerald Skywalker. <laughs> Here he says multiple times, both coming in and out of this promo, Sean Mooney calls 
Sergeant Slaughter, the demented drill sergeant. Yeah, this Sergeant Slaughter being a Racky Angle was a real turning point for a lot of people our age uh, that were uh, coming of age during this time watching wrestling. A lot of people quit watching wrestling during this angle. Uh, it was a failure. I mean, you go back to WrestleMania, and they were originally planning to have that in, I can't remember which stadium the it was. LA Coliseum. Big, yeah, they yeah were... the big outdoor stadium, you know, tens and tens and tens of thousands of people, well in excess of 50,000 people. I think they're expecting to get like eighty or 90,000. And then it sold so poorly that they had to move it to the LA Sports Arena under the guise that they were getting terroristic threats uh, against the venue because of Sergeant Slaughter's turn to being Iraqi. Uh, that's how they tried to explain it away, but it was just because they couldn't sell tickets. No, and it was in such poor taste that like guys like Bob Costas, who were supposed to be big celebrity participants of WrestleMania, said, uh, thanks, but no thanks, and was a wrestling fan, and then kind of he quit at this point too. He's like, ah, this is... This just feels too uh, too sleazy for me. And so, uh, yeah, there, this was a big turning point angle that ran off a lot of wrestling fans at this point. And it was so pointless because, I mean, I just remember back then, even beyond like the tastelessness of it, given the war and everything, just the idea of Sergeant Slaughter in 1991. You know, they had him beat, uh, he he beat the, the ultimate warrior, warrior didn't he use like the scepter yeah from savage or something yep. he like he used the scepter won the title and then he's gonna be defending against hogan and it just i just remember as a kid being uh, just not excited about that at all we get an lod the legion of doom the road warriors do a promo they are hungry because they don't have the belts and the nasties do they're also scared of Pez Watley. That's why they're here in this, uh, in front of this Zoom background instead of uh, manning up in the arena. Vince then tells us that Jake will give an update next week. Right now, he's distraught over the loss of Damien. Next week, also appearing, the Berserker. <laughs> the Berserker. Who, by the way, do you remember the Berserker's finisher, John Nord, the Berserker? He would pick the guy up in an atomic drop position and then just run and throw him over the top rope to the floor and get count out wins. It was yes. so dumb. His but it finisher, was also... his finisher, could never win him a championship. Yes. No, it, it was so it dumb. Precluded him from reaching the height of his profession. But I loved seeing him toss barely trained jobbers <laughs> over the top rope and just. In that moment, much like uh, Roddy Piper talking about those 10 seconds between uh, consciousness and unconsciousness, those milliseconds between when the man was hurtling through the air and when he hit the ground, seeing how they would crash to the floor always brought me great joy. So, yes, he is he will. Uh, he's the first name they tell us that we will see on next week's show. We'll also see the Texas tornado. Colonel Mustafa Virgil. No, and- not Virgil. Bodyguard Virgil bodyguard is how Virgil. it's said. That's right. It actually says that's, that's the official name. Bodyguard Virgil. And Hulk Hogan will be the guest on the funeral parlor. And of course, the previously mentioned Nasty Boys versus Rockers for the tag team titles. And he alludes that this weekend, 
Hulk Hogan's in a battle royal and Sergeant Slaughter versus the Ultimate Warrior. So I was wondering if that was not only alluding to house shows, but also uh, a potential Saturday night's main event coming up. So, Yeah, I don't think so, because I think they would have said that otherwise. I think this was just, again, these thinly valved. I think Vince was maybe, yeah, Vince was at this point probably starting to get one of his weird things that, oh, it's too, it's too wrestling if we talk about the loop, but we'll just tell people these matches are coming, not tell them when they are, and then expect them to like read the trail or, you know, pick up on the trail of breadcrumbs and end up at the, the doors of the arena and go in and watch the show. It's very weird. So we're less than a month from WrestleMania seven to the date of this taping. Okay. The angles that have taken place so far are, uh, Sergeant Slaughter threw a fireball at Hogan to keep their program going. The undertaker attacked warrior, locked him in a coffin, like we mentioned. And, so the, those are the big programs that were coming out of WrestleMania 7. And Jake the Snake Roberts would eventually debut a new snake called Lucifer. So those... I completely forgot about that. Wow. Yeah, so that is uh, where we were in 1991. Uh, one of the big takeaways that I had from this show, one of my favorite things on the show besides Mr. Perfect, uh, was... The sight of all the wrestling buddies in the crowd. Yes. Uh, I, so Tonka made pillows that l- looked like wrestlers. And and as a kid, I legit had them all. Like I, I am not surprised. As, as a, and, and as someone who, uh, you know... You know, I, I didn't get everything I wanted for Christmas. Uh, it was it was it was amazing that I was able to amass the collection of wrestling buddies that I did uh, growing up. So yeah, it was great to uh, to see the wrestling buddies in the crowd as well. But Mr. Perfect is my favorite thing on this show. What about you? Yeah, I would say without a doubt, Mr. Perfect and Bobby Heenan. Just the moment they walked through the curtain till they went to the back. Uh, again, can't use any other word than perfect to describe how great they were as an act. And Mr. Perfect, just like we talked about, just looked so good in the ring just in the very brief time we saw him. So, yeah, I would say perfect. Honorable mention just to the format of this show. I grew up not as a huge WWF fan, but I loved Superstars. I I made a point to watch it every week. And I just I, I enjoyed the combination of just great squash matches with, you know, just fools getting beat up every week. And then. Like we talked about, you know, getting that big angle and or, you know, a big, you know, one big competitive match every week. The show, uh, to me, it just always flew right by. Uh, and, and it was also packed with like this episode was packed with more than I remembered superstars having. Uh, but kind of looking back to shows around this time, this was pretty much a normal show. Yeah. Easy to watch format a lot in an hour here. And uh, yeah, it was a uh, uh, fun time and and moving moving along that you, you knew immediately just parachuting in you knew who the champions were you knew who everybody's programs were were with and and where they were going post wrestlemania so and they did this all without any video recaps nope yeah just uh and promos in the event center was as as close as we got so with that uh yeah a successful show we're gonna wrap it up make sure that uh we mentioned a lot of shows from the back catalog today uh we made a lot of inside jokes to shows in the back catalog <laughs> so make sure that you've gone back listen to those episodes there's uh a 
plenty of hours available, uh, season one and season two. Just because we're in season two doesn't mean you can't go back and listen to those season one episodes if you're just joining us as a new listener. This is evergreen content. This stuff is sitting there waiting for you to go back. Go back and listen to uh, Royal Albert Hall and get uh, get get educated on us making fun of Paul Glory. And and go <laughs> so there there's a lot of good stuff in the archives. It's all new to you if you haven't heard it before, so make sure you uh, hit those up wrestling at random.com that has all the links to follow us on social media. Every Thursday we'll tell you what's going to come out on the free feed on Sunday and what's already in your bonus feed if you're a Patreon subscriber. So make sure you're following us on social media, Twitter and Instagram at Wrestle at Random. And again, all the links can be found at WrestlingAtRandom.com. With that, we're wrapping it up. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. This was a fun show. I will just say, as we always do, make sure you tell your your wrestling fan friends, uh, your former wrestling fan friends, and your former friend wrestling fans about the podcast. They will all get something out of it. Yes, we appreciate your support, and we rely on your support to keep telling people about the show. With that, we're wrapping it up. So thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you again next time.